Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, what a glorious morning for Morning Combat. Hi, everyone. On this 9th of December, 2022, my name is Luke Thomas. Welcome to the show. A, a I should say, an award-winning show. I should say a motherfucking back-to-back award-winning show. We have a lot to get to today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yes, we, in fact, did win the World MMA Awards. We were not in Vegas last night. BC is gone today. You'll notice he's not here, unfortunately. You're like, oh, BC picks great times to not be on the show. Yeah, he missed, well, not just because of him, but also because of my travel. We missed the MMA Awards. He's missing Bellator tonight. He's missing the last pay-per-view of the year for UFC tomorrow, but he will be back on Monday, although he is, in a different way, in just a few moments, going to be on today's show. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. We have so much to get to. Bellator 289, obviously, is going to be something for tonight. We'll talk about that. Of course, we're going to lead off in just a few moments with uh, excuse me, UFC 282 coverage. We have a lot to, to get to with that, as well as Dan Canobio is going to join us here. Dan Canobio, you might know him from a couple of places. By the way, this is the brains behind CompuBox. He also has a show he does with Chris Algieri live, Inside Boxing Live. Um, we'll talk to him about that. He'll join us in about mm, 45 to 50 minutes or so to get you ready. By the way, Teofimo Lopez is back. There's a lot going on in the boxing world. Bud Crawford's fighting this weekend for those who want to pay for BLK Prime. Uh, so we'll get to we'll, we'll talk about that with him as we get to boxing in the second hour of the show. Uh, as always, it's customary. Thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Please hit subscribe if you are new here. Normally, it is not just me running my stupid mouth. Normally, it is BC and I both running our stupid mouths. Um, but nevertheless, if you're new here and you want to give it a, a shot, we do this three times uh, a week, live, 11 a.m. in the East. And then, of course, all other kinds of stuff that we do on top of it. Interviews, post-fight reactions, we travel, sometimes we don't. It's a whole thing. So uh, keep that in mind. Very quickly, let's get to some of the, the disclaimers, if I can. Uh, first things first here, Showtime.com is the label that pays. If you don't have Showtime, by the way, for Bellator tonight, you can go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you'd like it, you can keep it. If not, feel free to bounce. You can go to the store. You can't quite see my shirt, but I've got one of our own pieces of merch on here. Uh, MorningCombat.store is the place to get it. The bomber jackets you saw us wear on Wednesday shows, they are available for sale, either in like military green or black. They're pretty cool, um, so you can go check those out. Would make a great Christmas gift for the right kind of degenerate. Morningcombat at gmail.com is the place to email the show if you have anything for Wednesday's fans ups, Friday's dead wrong, or just to reach the show in general. And uh, yeah, so we've got some reads to get to. We obviously have to get to uh, UFC 282, Bellator 289, but let's hit the pause moment uh, button for just a moment if we can, and let's talk about the news that happened overnight. Namely, the 14th annual World MMA Awards took place in Las Vegas, Nevada. We were there last year when we won, which was a true highlight. If you've not seen it, we have a whole documentary about it. That's currently youtube.com slash morning combat. If anyone's listening on the online portion of this, you can go watch that documentary. Uh, and we wanted to go this year. We were surprised to be nominated back to back, but we just couldn't make it. BC is out for a wedding, so he was unavailable and I had so much travel and other work I have to do. I just could not really squeeze it in. Um, and make everything else work with the show that we had to do it. So I just really couldn't couldn't tend, which was regrettable because 
we went to bed last night. We didn't think we were going to win because usually like when you win and you're not able to make it, they ask you to do some kind of video acceptance award and they didn't ask us. So we were like, well, I guess we lost. So we went to bed and, you know, didn't think twice about it because listen, we were happy with the show. We're happy with the previous award. We got a lot of other irons in the fire. We're like, you know, just happy to be nominated. Tomorrow will be a new day. Then we wake up and I check my mentions and they're just filled with people saying congratulations. And then this morning it's been an onslaught. Could not, could not believe it. Um, So let me just say a few things about the award. Number one, thank you to the fans who voted. Yes, we harvested those votes. We we whipped the caucus to get the votes that we wanted. But closed mouth don't get fed. This is not a world where you can expect things to just come to you. You have to go out and get them. At least that's been my experience. And um, thank you so much to everyone who has voted, who has watched, who has supported, who has bought merch, who has not bought merch, but just been a part of the show. Everyone, everyone in this entire family, we are so unbelievably grateful to all of you. It's not just words, man. I am telling you, everyone on staff here is on a high, especially me and BC, who I did speak to this morning. That's the first thing I'd say. Second, we got to thank the crew here. Everyone at Malka, from Manich to Gaff to Long Island Luke to, I mean, I could go down the list there on everyone involved in Malka and, and Ashley and uh, Carly and Tristan and the whole crew down there. They do an amazing job on the Showtime side. Uh, Matt Snyder, uh, Courtney Mogg, obviously big thanks to Brian Daly. Obviously want to thank people on the CBS side as well. The intrepid uh, bedrock producer that we have, Mikey Morms, uh, and everyone on the CBS side as well. Eric Kay and the whole crew um, and everyone involved over there. Uh, Sam Batesh, my uh, boss as well. Thank you to everyone at Malka. Um, thank you to everyone at Showtime. If I didn't mention him, Brian Daly from Showtime as well, a critical ingredient of this whole thing. And then, of course, at CBS. We have a, a lot of people bring this show to you um, to, to make it what it is. And so we have to thank them for all of their ridiculous efforts and, and the things that they uh, enable us to do. And I, I think I would just say personally as well, I want to thank Fighters Only Magazine for even taking note of this and caring about what we do. I, I will tell the, something to the folks who, have, who didn't win or weren't nominated. You should not get down about it. Yes, it does feel great to win. I'd be lying if I said it doesn't feel good to win. It feels incredible, and we're extremely happy about it. But I know what it's like to really put your best foot forward. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't really work out in the in the greater scope of the industry recognizing it and appreciating it in the ways that you want. There were so many talented people who were up for, or I should say, were having so many of their efforts recognized by virtue of the nomination, and who didn't win, and then a lot of other ones who didn't even get nominated, do not get down about it. Do not get down about it. I just, and BC too, we had to keep swinging the axe through our entire 20s, through our entire 30s. It really wasn't even until our early 40s that things began to come together for us. I know a lot of people who were nominated who didn't win, who are much younger than us, who are very far along in their own process, but haven't got to this point. Folks, a lot of what we're here about is because of all the people I've mentioned, the fans, the staff, and everyone else, but a lot of it is just luck. A lot of it is just luck. We just got lucky to get in business with Showtime. We got lucky to get in business with CBS Sports. It just worked out because we didn't quit. We just kept going. And sure enough, over time, the efforts get rewarded. Not necessarily on the timeline you might expect, not necessarily in all the ways that you might have envisioned, but here I am living proof that um, things can just not necessarily go the way you had planned for a long time, and then all of a sudden, they do. Now, 
That's enough for me. We did talk to BC this morning. Of course, he's going to want to talk about it live on the air on Monday, but he recorded a special message for everyone. Let's hear what he had to say. Wow. Wow. I mean, oh, 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 oh. Uh, your boy BC here in uh, beautiful Charleston, South Carolina uh, for cousin Mike Campbell's wedding. Sorry I'm missing MK today, but, you know, special bulletin alert out to everybody. That makes Morning Combat exactly what it is. A special, unique, obscene, absurd, amazing, ridiculous, not combat sports show, almost social club, almost lifestyle, almost weird-ass family. But two straight years, World MMA Awards, best MMA programming, beating Rogan, beating that content creator, beating Dana. Guys, we are not here without you. Without Dr. Mike and his tattooed wife, without the snarky red ginger, without Saul and little Anthony and the fake Saul. You know what I mean? Without Aaron Bronstetter and Shaq Majori and Chuck Mindenhall contributing, without Luke Thomas, but not nothing without you. Guys, you voted for us, you made this possible. I'm overwhelmed, I'm never gonna take it, you know. I can't take things for granted. I may, you know, my liver may not last this calendar year. So I'm thankful for all of you for making this possible. To Mikey Mormile of CBS, Matt Snyder, Courtney Maggot Showtime, our great Malka team, and to Luke Thomas. I don't always love that guy. But do I need him? Yes. Physically, no. But emotionally, yes. Luke Thomas, thank you too for being exactly who you are. Guys, this MK thing, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was all just a dream, right? It's reality, okay? BC, signing off with love, all right? I mean, check, the, look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at that. Did you see the bags under that motherfucker's eyes? I mean, <laughs> you could put up homeless encampments under those uh, bags. I mean, it's, I mean, I got pretty bad ones, right? Look, look how bad mine are. Mine are pretty bad. I mean, they're, they're awful. But his are pretty bad, too. Unbelievable. So there's BC checking in. He's at a wedding. We knew this was coming. He wasn't going to make it. The timing just didn't work out that great. We wanted him, obviously, to be here. We didn't think we were going we to win. Any, we never think we're going to win. Assuming I never think we're going to win. And so we just didn't really plan for it. And so lastly, let me return the favor to Brian Campbell. He's a very different person than me in many ways. But in many ways, he's not. Our journeys were very unique, but they ended up in similar and actually they will the identical same place in, in, in a lot of respects. And I understand his struggle, I think, better than most and more than most. I appreciate everything he does. I think the show is just, it doesn't exist without him, to be honest. Today, it's going to have to. But you know what I'm saying. It's just not right without him. It's not the same. And so best best you know working partner certainly I've ever had. And, um, you know, don't you go dying on me in South Carolina. I like he's like, I'm in beautiful South Carolina. And then the weather's just shit. And there's a marsh right there. So. Typical BC for you. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. We just can't say it enough. I, I woke up at 5 a.m. First thing I did was check my phone, and I just I couldn't believe it. I really, really, truly couldn't, man. I just never expect stuff like this. It's For the vast majority of my life, it never went the right way, to be perfectly honest with you. And and now it like seems to happen way more than I ever, um, even in my best-case scenario, it's happening more than I thought possible. So... Thank you, MK fans. Thank you, MK staff. Thank you, fighters only. Thank you, BC. And with that out of the way, let's get this party started.
shall we? First things first, I want to read to you something because, as we all know, UFC 282 is on Saturday. And folks, things are going to get intense in the octagon when UFC 282 takes place. Of course, Saturday, Jan Blahovich, Magomed Ankalaev going head-to-head. Something, of course, you're not going to want to miss. We're going to go over here in, j- in just a minute. And of course, we have teamed up here at MK with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC, to share an awesome deal with you guys. All new customers, all they have to do is sign up using the promo code COMBAT. You can see it on the screen right there. If you're listening on your podcast platform, it's COMBAT with a K. Bet $5 on either fighter to win before the fight starts and get an additional $150 in free bets if your bet wins. Of course, as I indicated, an additional $150 in free bets if your pre-fight wager of $5 or more on a fighter to win hits. By the way, you can get more kinds of action. You can do parlays. You can do... You know, by virtue of how long it goes or doesn't, there's all kinds of ways to combine the betting. DraftKings can facilitate you in that as well. If you live in a state, by the way, where mobile sports betting is not yet available, how about DraftKings Daily Fantasy is giving all MMA fans a chance, a chance, excuse me, to cash out this weekend. And this is important. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So right now, folks, this is what you got to do. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. As I tell you to, new customers use the promo code COMBAT, $5 on any UFC 282 fighter to win, and get $150 in free bets if your bet wins. Promo code COMBAT, only a DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. All right. Speaking of UFC 282, let's talk about it now. And we have done a lot in talking about this. If you haven't already seen it, it is up available for your perusal. BC and I sat down with Chuck Mindenhall. We did a 282 pregame preview. We've talked about the storylines. We've talked about the fights sort of in a broader kind of storyline detail. Now it's time for some X's and O's. Jan Blahovich versus Magomed Ankalaev for the currently vacant UFC light heavyweight title. As it stands, Blahovich is a plus 235. Ankalaev is a minus 280. Now, before the show on Twitter... You can follow me at L Thomas News. I asked you guys to give me some questions specifically about UFC 282 and Bellator 289. So as I go through these fights here a little bit, what we're going to do is get to some of your questions mixed in. Appreciate everyone who contributed. We've got them here. We're going to go through them in just a minute. But BC always likes to start Friday by asking me like what any particular fight hinges on. What are the driving determinative factors in situations like this? And I think it's important to note something between Magomed Ankalaev and Jan Blahovich, which is statistically, which is not the sum total of everything, far from it, but statistically they are very similar fighters. Very similar fighters. Of course, they're going to be the same weight or roughly the same weight. Average fight time, Blahovich, 12 minutes and 20 seconds. Ankalaev, 11 minutes and 10 seconds. Reach, there is a bit of a substantive difference here, and we'll talk about it. This is one of the few areas where there's some. Blahovich 78-inch reach, Ankalaev 75. They're both orthodox fighters, and they're about eh, a year and some change. Well, actually, no, a little bit more than that. They're about 10 years apart in age. Uh, okay, strikes landed per minute. Blahovich 3.55 per minute. Magomed Ankalaev 3.64. Good, good numbers, not great numbers, good numbers, but pretty similar. Striking accuracy, 49% for Blahovich, 54 for Ankalaev. Slightly more accurate. Strikes absorbed per minute, 2.77. For Blahovich, 2.14 for Ankalaev. So they both have a positive differential. 
slightly better, certainly for Ankalaev, but not hugely dissimilar. Striking defense, 54% for Blahovic, 60% for Ankalaev. Even in the grappling, it's not that different. 1.08 takedowns landed per 15 minutes for Blahovic, 0.94. So slightly more takedown activity from Blahovic, but not a huge discrepancy. Now, here's where things get a little bit dicey. Takedown accuracy, 53% for Blahovic, 33% for Ankalaev. Very, very low um, accuracy in terms of takedowns. Now, some of that is a little bit misleading because obviously you can hunt for takedowns as a mechanism to set up something else. And so they'll count it as a takedown or a takedown attempt, even though you're, you weren't, it looked like one, you weren't really going for it. Some of that does explain Ankalaev. Takedown defense, though, 66% for Blahovich, which is not great, but not terrible. 86% for Ankalaya, very high. And then submission average, are, and there's not much of a, a difference there. Okay, why do I bring all of this up? Because I can tell you that they are statistically similar, or not identical, obviously, but certainly very similar profiles. They're, the number ranges are never far apart. There are some differences here or there, but nothing too big. So you might be asking me, what does this fight hinge on? In thinking about it, I was like, well, well, let's talk about the striking. If they fought at kickboxing range, who would that favor? I tend to think it would probably favor Blahovich at least a little bit. Now, Ankalaev is good everywhere, and so you can certainly imagine a scenario where from the place of the, that, that kind of range, he would also be able to land um, with some decent authority. But here's the issue. If he's going to go with leg kicks, Jan Blahovich, something that just really doesn't get discussed enough and I think was a huge factor in his fight with Izzy, is he's one of the best guys at checking leg kicks in all of the UFC. I don't think that gets discussed nearly enough. Why is that so important? Everyone focuses on the fight with Blahovich and Izzy as a function of the takedowns. And of course, that was massively significant, particularly in the fourth and fifth rounds, right? They made a big difference in those championship spots. But what about the first three? What did you learn there? This is where the checking of the kicks is a massive factor. Blahovich was able to check so many of Izzy's leg kicks. And what that ended up doing was, one, it just denied him meaningful offense, right? He couldn't land and then get out of the way um, in, in other cases where he has been able to, like, for example, the Romero fight or many other ones. So what it ended up doing was it forced Izzy to march into Blahovich a little bit more closely. He actually abandoned, to an extent, kickboxing range for boxing range. Now, from there, it was a bit, you know, they neither guy landed a ton, but that, of course, bringing Izzy closer to Blahovich enabled Blahovich to eventually find the takedown. Standard rule of thumb. Now, you might see some differences here when Danny Sabatello fights in Bellator tonight, but I've often said this. How far away should you be for a double leg takedown? No further than you should be away for a punch. I should be able to reach out and touch you. That's how far you should be for a double leg takedown. That is appropriate distance. Some guys can do it from further away. I understand. But as a general rule, that's how far you want to be. So that is, to me, a big reason why the takedowns worked against Izzy for Blahovich at all. Because he had walked himself closer to the space that he needed to be. So what does that mean for this contest? Honestly, who's got better power? It might be Blahovich. Ankalaev can thump. But Blahovich has good power in his hands. He has good combinations. You have to be mindful of the distance with him. For example, think about what Corey Anderson did in their second fight. I mean, it was a bit of a mess for him because he got way too close into range. 
and his power and his accuracy, as we've seen, is pretty good. So what does this fight really hinge on? Is it kickboxing range or boxing range? My friends over at Fightmetric put together something. Uh, Richard Mann has this stat, and to me, this tells the story of what you need to know about this fight. Jan Blahovich, ready for this, in the UFC, is 11-1 and one when he does not allow a single takedown. However, when an opponent has landed at least one takedown, he is 2-5. and five. Folks, I think it's going to come down to this. It might be the case. It could be. These fights are very hard to predict. There are so many variables. One really never knows for sure. It could be the case that Ankalaev, who is a very good boxer, keeps this one on the feet the whole time and tries to box him at range and, and maybe does a better job. He's got a phenomenal jo uh, jab when he wants it. He's got good movement. He doesn't get hit cleanly very often. You know, that seems to me a very workable place. Knowing these numbers and knowing how well Ankalaev trains and what he goes after, I'm going to guess that takedowns are going to be a part of it. I'm going to guess that it may not be the ultimate linchpin, but it's going to be a, a, an ever-present threat that Blahovich has to deal with. I'm going to imagine that Ankalaev is going to press forward into Blahovich, which can be dangerous, right? Especially if you clinch and then break, as we saw with Luke Rockhold. But I'm going to guess that what the real path to victory here is Yes, the takedown, but the mixing, right? Where he can establish some kind of takedown threat. There might be ground and pound behind it. Not so much in the sense that that alone will help him win it. I don't think you're going to see a lot of submission threats on top. Kimuras or Americanas or something like that. Or arm bars if he was somehow able to pass to mount. Even from the back, he just does not, like, it doesn't look to me like the kind of guy who's going to go um, and lock up chokes and, risk getting dumped he's going to make good decisions about positioning but what I think you are going to see is some takedowns some of that will work to drain him some of that will involve ground and pound and then beyond that it will make his boxing work much better because everything will be feeding into it together I think that's going to be the key I mean think about what happens if you take Blahovich down right I'm not saying he's got a bad ground game he doesn't I mean the guy is you know highly decorated for a reason but if you take Blahovich down, is he a threat off of his back? And you could be like, well, Paul Craig got him. But that was on Kalayev's debut, and I don't think that would happen again. And again, in general, in general, the rule is I would say he's very, very careful, defensively sound. How many times have we talked about how good it can be to be defensively sound, even if you don't have, from a notoriety standpoint, the best offense? Hello, Islam Makachev fits that bill perfectly. So I don't think that's necessarily going to be the, the situation here where we, oh, his offense is good, but not super dynamic. Yeah, his defense is good, though. It's really good. He's got good takedown defense. He doesn't get hit cleanly very often. He can mix it up. I think that is going to be what you're looking for. It's not to say one more time that if Ankalaev doesn't get the takedown, that there's no hope of winning. What I am going to say is if you see Ankalaev getting the takedown, that spells trouble. That spells big trouble for Blahovich. The stats speak to that. The history speaks to that. And I think even if you didn't have that, the tape speaks to that. The tape kind of shows you once you can get him working back to his feet or him underneath with his guard or whatever, he's just not, he can be defensively sound, Blahovich. He can survive, but he's not really going to threaten you from there. To threaten you, he either has to be on top or at range. 
Those are the two places that Blahovich does his best work. So a smart fighter, an experienced fighter, a championship-level fighter, which both guys are at this point, certainly Blahovich as the previous champion, um, I think that mixing it up for Ankalaev is what you're looking for here. I think the takedown is going to be key, not so much because the ground and pound or the sub will be there, although you might get some of the ground and pound, because what it does to the overall offense and how it brings his game to life. A couple of questions from you guys here on Twitter. Dan O'Connor asks, what do you think is the best path of victory for Jan, and does it favor him if it goes into the championship rounds? I actually feel like um, he should be doing the leg kicking. I think he needs to slow down the movement of Ankalaev. Now, you risk the takedown with the leg kicking, but if you go to calf kicking, you can A, do it further away, and B, you can retreat more easily. So that might be a good path, I think, as well. Plus, if you've got the longer reach, there was one more stat about the reach that I wanted to read you for Ankalaev. Listen to this. One, put this is from uh, Richard Mann. Let me pull this over here so I'm not looking like a crazy person. Quote, one potential factor in the striking realm will be reach. Despite being one inch shorter than Ankalaev, Blahovich has a 78-inch reach. That gives him a three-inch reach advantage. The Russian fighter has faced only one opponent in the UFC with a reach greater than 76 inches, and it was the only fighter where he was outlanded. He faced off against Nikita Krylov, who was listed with a 77-inch reach and was outlanded 47 to 50, 43 on significant strikes. So he was barely outlanded. I would also say Krylov is a little less judicious, maybe, than Ankalaev. Like, he just kind of throws with a little bit more recklessness. Nevertheless, you see there, this is why I think striking is going to be a component. The takedown is going to be the ceiling aspect of it. All right. So that's sort of how I'm working this out. Now, uh, let me see here uh, very quickly. One second. Let me make an adjustment here on my thing. All right. Very good. Now, let's go to some other fights on this. Actually, you know what? Let me get a couple more questions in here, and then we'll go to the other fights on this card. From the Guillotine Podcast, they ask, who will bring more value to the division by taking the light heavyweight belt on Saturday? Honestly, I think Ankalaev, um, only because he, I think he can bring stability to the division. I think they want to make inroads in uh, with not taking shows to Russia, but getting more talent recruited that direction would be a big one. Blahovich would be good too. I don't think they'd be happy or unhappy either way. But also, if Ankalaev wins and then has to fight either Yuri again, however you pronounce it, or Glover, it's fresh matchups. And then Jared asks, could you go over a few things that make Jan so special? Defending the leg kicks is a big one. Ridiculous power. Good patience. No one ever talks about his patience. Like, he used to run into punches and blitz a little bit more. He doesn't do that hardly at all. Uh, it's just not a big component. And, of course, back to the ground game, one of the weaknesses, you saw it against Glover, who has very good jiu-jitsu. He can be overwhelmed there uh, on top. All right. Let's go to the co-main event here. Uh, not much of a co-main event in terms of, like, the stakes of the division at lightweight, but Patty Pimblett... Min, excuse me, minus 250 to Jared Gordon, plus 210. What hinges, or I should say, what does this fight hinge on? So I went back and I watched a fair amount of fight, tape on Gordon and a fair amount of tape on Patty Pimblett. Let me read to you who they have beaten since they got to the UFC or their last five. Now, this is only the fourth fight for Patty in the UFC. So he's got the win over uh, Vendramini. He's got the win over Vargas. And then the last fight, he had a win over Jordan Levitt. For Jared Gordon, he has wins over Fishgold, wins over Chavez, wins over Seleski, the loss to Grant Dawson, who's a very good fighter, and then he had the win over Santos. And the win over Santos is a little bit, I'm not sure what to make of it. The fight was at altitude. I think this was the one that was in Salt Lake City. Yes, I think that's right. 
And Santos is also 42, couldn't get the fight to the floor. Also, there was one moment where he could have gotten the fight to the floor, but inadvertently or otherwise, Gordon grabbed the fence. The commentators noted it. I was thinking about this fight, like statistically, what does this fight hang on? These guys have a lot of similarities in, in a number of ways as well. Gordon lands 5.53 strikes per minute, so he's very active. I would not say he's a heavy puncher, but he is a fairly consistent one. He also likes to go to the body, 4.19 for Patty Pimblett. He'll kind of blitz through, so he has a higher number than normal, but it's not it's not great. Lower accuracy, 58 for Gordon, 53 for Pimblett. Not a huge difference, but one there. Strikes absorbed, they both, they both eat a lot of punches. Three flat for Pimblett, 3.11 for Gordon. Here's the big one, defense. Jared Gordon, 57%. That's high. That's good. Not super high, but that's that's good. It's a good number. Pimblet, 41. Ooh, that's not great. That's not great at all. Um, we have seen it before. The biggest weakness to me, people say it's the striking of Petty Pimblet. Pimblet's striking is definitely not as good as his ground game. That's true. And there's holes you can poke in, in a lot of different ways. But the truth be told here, the big issue for me on this one, very easily... Uh, is he just walks into a lot of punches. His striking defense is, is, is I'll just be honest, it's poor. It's poor. Um, I think his back takes and his ground game there are phenomenal. But on the feet, um, he the UFC has match made him the right way. They've not put him up against someone who's a dynamic striking threat. I would actually argue Gordon is the best striking threat that he has faced, albeit one who has high volume, which can be problematic, opponents but not again not huge power that we have seen but that's one key to this every time this has been a problem for him in cage warriors it's been a problem for him in the ufc not one that has cost him the fight in the ufc but a consistent problem nevertheless you go to the grappling side of things 1.88 for patty pimblet strikes or excuse me takedowns per 15 minutes it's pretty good jared gordon a little bit higher 1.97 takedown accuracy about the same 40 percent for pimblet 39 for gordon Takedown defense, not much different. 60% for Pimblet, 58% uh, for Jared Gordon. The big difference is submission average per 15 minutes, 4.7 for Patty, zero for Jared Gordon. Huge difference there. By the way, Jared Gordon is a John Danaher brown belt. Let me just explain something to you folks. There's brown belts and then there's John Danaher brown belts. He ain't giving out brown belts very easily, right? He ain't giving them out very easily. You're going to have to earn that one. And so what does this fight come down to? I have gone back and forth on this one. It, to me, is very winnable in either direction because for all of the striking deficiencies that are known about Patty Pimblett and that have been a continuous problem for him, quite frankly, it could cost him here, could cost him in any fight in the UFC. These are small gloves. These are talented guys. They're in shape. They're experienced. Yes, that could be very poor for him, but you have to think, Win or lose, this is going to be a function of what happens in the ground game, unless Gordon uh, like assiduously avoids that, which is also possible. But maybe at that point, Patty can get him down or drag him into it or something. If you go fight for Gordon, he was able to stuff some takedowns, put pressure on Dawson late, especially in the third round, right where he was stuffing takedowns and rib roasting him against the fence. But the vast majority of the time, what you did see was that Dawson was, A, able to make contact, like close quarters, body lock, underhook, something, run him into the fence, and then off single leg attacks, either trip him out or run the pipe and put him on the ground. It was a big problem for him. And then he would, of course, turn his back to try and get to the fence, and a lot of times he was giving up his back. Now, I think Dawson has much better wrestling than Patty Pimblett, but it goes to show you there are some certain vulnerabilities there. Again, some of the stats speak to that. 
You go to the Joe Selesky fight. Now, he ended up beating Selesky, which is a nice win. That's a tough guy to beat. But Selesky, at least early on, was able to get the takedowns pretty easily because of the volume. This is the sort of downside to Gordon's style, and I think there's a load of incongruity there. The amount of volume that he throws without the requisite power being there means it gives guys a lot of times, if you're throwing a big hook like this, it gives them time to get underneath constantly. And that's how Dawson was able to do it. He kind of would wait for some opening that was never too far behind by virtue of how much Gordon throws and was able to get under it. And you can see there was able to, and this is the Selesky fight, was able to take the back for a time and do everything else. Now, again, Gordon showed up until the third round of the Dawson fight, good submission defense, good patience. He knows how to get up. He Again, once he gets up, he's going right to work. I think he's got a good gas tank. So I'll say this. I feel like what does this fight hinge on? Once again, it's not to say that if Gordon goes to the ground with Patty, he can't win. There was one time where Dawson took him down, so or was trying to take him down, so Gordon threatened with a choke. Uh, Dawson got him down, but then Gordon flipped him over, was able to keep the choke on the front headlock, and then get up there and stand. So even if it goes to the ground, both guys can scramble, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel like when it goes to the ground, Patty is better. For all of his deficiencies on the feet, Patty is better on the ground, is a much more vigorous and I think better submission hunter in those places. To me, this is really going to be a function of, again, if it goes to the ground, that's not saying Gordon can't or won't win. Hell, look at the takedown defense of Patty. It's just 60%. He might get on top and pound him out. It's very possible. But I think going back to the Santos fight, different opponent, different considerations, altitude being chief among them, my big takeaway is if he can keep it on the feet, this is his fight to lose. Uh, easier said than done, certainly. But to me, it's easier. That, that's, that's really the mechanism by which he'll get there. Um, we are asked, according to Ryan, says, uh, let's see, uh, big congratulations. Okay, what's your interest level in seeing the promotion book Patty versus Toporia at 155 if they both pass their respective tests? Let's see Ilya get past Bryce Mitchell. But if they do that, honestly, that might be a bad fight for Patty. I don't know. Uh, and then another person asks, assuming Patty wins, how long before they need to give him a ranked opponent? One or fight or two more? Let's see what he looks like against Gordon. If he ekes by Gordon, two. If he like goes in there and really shows us some development, one. One is what I would say. Um, don't have a whole lot to say about Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Alex Morino. Plus, we have to get to some other stuff. So I'll just say Ponzinibbio. Remember, he's supposed to fight Robbie Lawler. Lawler coming in, uh, or excuse me, being removed from the card uh, due to injury late notice. Morino coming in. He's a plus 155 underdog to a minus 180 Santiago Ponzinibbio. Morino is a overall very skilled fighter um, who I think has a great coach in, in Saif Saud and uh, good connection with the coach. Like when the coach asks him to do something, he does it. It's kind of important. Also, a guy who you can tell from like, for example, the Cerrone fight and even the Pettis fight believes in game plans and rides them out until their conclusion. I think that might help him here. Still, the slicker of the two and the one who's shown, I think, a little bit more promise has been Ponzinibbio. However, Morino is, you know, the stage of the career he's in. This is the best version he's ever been. So the odds are pretty close. I would slightly lean towards Santiago being, again, a little bit more of a slickster on the feet, but we shall see. Uh, Darren Till at plus 155, taking on Drickus Duplessis at minus 180. This is, um, you saw Daniel Cormier, like, not mincing words about this one. I think he's right. This is a very, 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 very important fight in the career of Darren Till. Let's look at his last five fights. Lost to Tyron Woodley. Lost to Jorge Masvidal. By the way, he got submitted and put out in both of those. Split decision win over Gastelum. 
It's a tough loss to Whitaker. Good fight, but you know he was overly out. Uh, he was eventually outmatched, and then he got finished off by Derek Brunson. In the case of Drickus Duplessis, wins over Perez, J- Trevin Giles, and uh, Brad Tavares. And what do we see from that? Drickus Duplessis, very very athletic. You can watch his fights with Roberto Soldich over in KSW. He's got good power. He brings a lot of dynamism to the fight. Um, he will run in with his chin up a little bit, so you you wonder about that. Statistically, listen to these numbers here from Drickus Duplessis. 6.55 strikes landed per minute. Just an absolute shit ton. Huge numbers here. For Till, just an anemic 2.26. Strikes absorbed per minute, 4.23. So here's the thing about Duplessis. He dishes. Don't get it twisted. He dishes. He takes a lot of abuse. 4.23 strikes absorbed per minute is high. That's high. For Till, it's just three. Now, the bad news for Till is he's got a negative differential still, right? He eats more than he lands, but it's not a huge difference. And at a bare minimum, the amount he eats is typically much lower. His striking defense, by the way, 58% to 52 for Drickus Duplessis. Drickus will look for a takedown at least once per 15 minutes. You can count on that. His takedown defense up to this point has been 100%. I don't expect that necessarily to change. His takedown accuracy, just 18%. So he's not much of a takedown threat. So this fight is going to be decided on the feet. Here's the thing, folks. Here's the thing. Till, to me, has shown more striking ability than Duplessis. I think that's pretty fair. Okay? I think he is better with his accuracy. I think he's better with shot selection. I just think he's got more tools. But not only does Duplessis throw a lot of volume... Uh, and lands really hard in conjunction with that volume in terms of how he, how he can disrupt the spacing, he just makes guys work a little bit and doesn't mind eating one to do it. I, I, I know this is at 185 and it's only three rounds. I'm not saying Till's going to gas, although he did a little bit in the, in the Dalby fight. I'm just sort of pointing out, not about that. Is it possible that Till lands big shots on him, but not enough? And that by virtue of just the amount of work that a guy like Duplessis does, that is enough to get the judges to give him the the nod. It is. That's in play, folks. Very much in play. He could just outwork him. He could take some big shots, but he might just land more simply by virtue of the amount of volume that he throws. Again, 2.26 strikes landed per minute for Darren Till. That's anemic. That is low. That's like Islam Makachev numbers. And yes, of course, he's very talented. He won his last fight. But in terms of, imagine he just had to fight on the feet and not just against Charles Oliveira. You could imagine how eventually that might be a little bit of a problem for him. So to me on this one, what you're really going to need to see from Till is effective counter-striking, which at times he's done. But against Jorge Masvidal, he didn't, right? And, and when I say effective countering, that doesn't mean he won't pressure Duplessis backwards. But when I say counter, I mean whatever else he's doing, backing up, moving forwards, fainting, I'm talking about eliciting a reaction or getting a reaction and then having an answer for that. Either Till's going to do that or he's not. And if he doesn't, this is hopeless for him. And if he loses this one, frankly, he's got some serious questions to ask about the state of his career. Speaking of which, questions here from ACL Media. Coming off of a two-fight losing streak and multiple injuries, is Darren Till's fight against Duplessis the most important fight in his career? Well, a title fight would be more important. But it does feel like This is a reckoning. You had all this hype. You had all this time. You should be better than you are by now. Something to think about. Uh, Feels like a make or break situation impactful towards his UFC career moving forward. Yes. Simply no denying it. All right. Let's talk about the card opener 
just a little bit. Bryce Mitchell at plus 110, excuse me, plus 120, taking on Ilya Tapora, Taporia at minus 140. Um, how about this stat? It's a very, very suspicious stat, so I went and I double-checked it, but I'm going to read it to you just the same. You would imagine on the feet, Taporia would handle Bryce Mitchell, right? On the feet. Doesn't necessarily land a ton, but you saw his power against Jai Herbert up a weight class. I mean, Taporia can fucking thump. How about the hammer fists that put down Ryan Hall as well? The dude can crack. Only lands 2.87 strikes per minute, only absorbs 2.28. So he's got a positive differential, not much. And by the way, even better for Bryce Mitchell, 2.28 strikes landed per minute, just absorbing 1.39. However, a lot of that is a function of just spending time in the ground game. Now, what is the takedown defense of Ilya Toporia? What's his takedown defense? If I had to ask you. It's 100%. 100% for Ilya Toporia. So I was like, okay, but who has he fought? Like, that doesn't even make any sense in the UFC. Like, have we really seen him tested? He fought Yusuf Zalal. He fought Damon Jackson, he fought Ryan Hall, and he fought Jai Herbert. You might be like, okay, well, Ryan Hall's a better grappler than Bryce Mitchell, so certainly that counts for something. And I know some folks might be saying, is he really a better grappler? Yes, Ryan Hall has a bronze medal from ADCC. He beat Jeff Glover to do it. Yes, he is a better grappler. But in MMA terms, he's not the same kind of grappler at all. Right? He's doing the Iminari roles and everything else, the inversions. Bryce Mitchell's much more of a straightforward wrestler. Frankly, here's the reality, folks. We've just not seen him tested, Taporia, against someone like this. This is why this fight is so interesting. Because I guarantee you that 100% takedown defensive rate is going to get tested. It's going to get tested big time. And he has not faced a takedown threat like this in the UFC. He's faced other good grapplers. That's true. But not the kind of way that Bryce Mitchell puts it together. That is what makes it interesting. Of course, on the ground, he has a black belt, so he's hardly some chump. He's young. Uh, the guy was born uh, a year after BC graduated high school, right? I mean, uh, you know, we're not talking about some guy who's got a lot of miles on him. We know his power carries. So you would imagine, by the way, he's got takedowns himself. He got five against Zalal. He got one against Jai Herbert when he needed it. I think it's when he got rocked. Um, but this is a very, I want to say, easy fight to assess but it's a pretty simple fight to assess, right? If Taporia can stuff enough of the takedowns where he's not constantly fighting them off and he's able to create space and the fight's on the feet, it's just hard to see how Bryce Mitchell wins. Very hard to see how he wins. I don't think his striking is bad per se, but it's just not what's going to get him the win here. Not against a guy who can hit like this, who is as good and athletic and nimble on the feet as a guy like this. Just very unusual. Plus, by the way, Taporia got rocked in that Jai Herbert fight and rallied big time, okay? Uh, showed a ton of heart and then came out there and then put his lights out. It looked like he had sliced Jai Herbert with a sword. He fell so hard. It was just unbelievable collapse. It's not that difficult to figure out here. This one is, this you know, striker versus grappler is a little bit overstated given that in one case the striker has got a black belt in jiu-jitsu and can also wrestle. And in the other case, you've got a guy who can also wrestle with great jujitsu, but also, um, you know, uh, he can strike a little bit. The thing that really you have to pay attention to is if he does get taken down, if that does happen, one of the things that makes Bryce Mitchell's style so overwhelming is he works on pins, right? He's very good about um, top pressure, passing pressure. Uh, he does a lot of what the Dagestani guys do where he uses his legs to anchor himself and then wrap his opponent's legs. 
and then by as a consequence uses that to drive down on them with his shots so he can he has this way where he'll use his legs to tie up your legs and then naturally what that does is and you saw this very clearly in the Barboza fight Barboza would use his hands to address the legs of Bryce Mitchell which would leave his face wide open and of course this is the game he plays with you right if he gets on top and not fully mount, but let's say he wraps the, the, the legs together with his own, like Habib style, yeah, against the fence. If you're the opponent there, you have a choice to make. The choice you have to make is, I can use my hands to push on Bryce Mitchell, and if I do, I'm going to get punched. But here's the thing. Bryce is going to break you down and put you flat on your back. And if you don't use your hands, obviously, to push his legs, he's going to punch you. If you bring your hands to defend yourself, he's going to slide up. He's going to get, take an even more dominant mount position. So pick your poison, fellas. You want to get punched in the face or you want him to take high mount on you? This is the dilemma or teases the back. He'll actually tease you to go to the back and then he'll take it from there. These are the choices he makes you do. You can see here with this clip or these, these, excuse me, these um, photos of what he does to Barboza, making you make impossible choices. Either protect your face or protect the mount. You're not going to do both at the same time. Either way, you're going to lose. Toporia, A, has to stop that before he gets started, or B, he has to find some kind of very nimble athletic way to uh, basically just do like a wrestle-up um, to get up out of it. He can't allow that to continue because Bryce Mitchell, and by the way, you can turn Bryce, and Bryce is a threat off of his back um, in ways that we're not sure if Toporia is, even though he's a very good black belt. So, this is a fun one. This is a really fun one. The odds on this one, let me see the odds as I mentioned them before. Yeah, Bryce Mitchell, plus 120, Taporia, minus 140. Ooh, those are tough ones. Tough ones, tough ones. Now, someone asks, if Bryce Mitchell wins, is it him versus Ortega the fight to make? I would have to see what the timeline would be. Let me look up the rankings here very quickly if I can for just a second. So if we look at the rankings here at featherweight, uh, what does it say? And where would Bryce be in that moment? So Bryce is sitting at nine. Taporia is sitting at 14. Now you're saying if Bryce wins, he kind of stays in place. What about Ortega? The problem is you have Giga Chikadze, Calvin Cater, Korean Zombies out because of a shoulder injury, and then Josh Emmett Arnold and uh, Josh Emmett's on there. So potentially he could fight Ortega, but Ortega's sitting in the top three. I tend to think they might give him somebody else, like a Chikadze or, you know, Evloev, something something like that, rather than going right to Ortega. But I'll say this, man. You guys know how it goes. It's not just who you beat uh, and how you beat them. Or I should say it's not just who you beat, but also how you beat them. Like, how dominant was it? Did you finish them? If he goes in there and just beats the brakes off of Taporia and then ragdolls him, anything's possible. Plus, if he goes in there and ragdolls him, people tend to like Bryce Mitchell. If he has a good call-out afterwards... It's possible. I'm just going to say to do that, a lot of factors have to line up. So not the likeliest thing, but I know what you're talking about. Hey, let's get a grappler versus a grappler. Um, you know, and two guys who are very nimble with it. But in that case, you might end up seeing them, you know, just slug it out in the feet. So that's your main card. Now we're going to go to Dan Canobio here in just a minute. Let's. What I'm going to do is we're going to do this UFC preview. We'll talk to Dan about boxing. And then we'll come back and do Bellator because we're just out of time to fit it all in. So let's just talk very quickly about the rest of this card. I don't have strong thoughts about a lot of them, but you've got Jairzinho Rosenstrike taking on Chris Dawkins. Dawkins a plus 145 Rosenstrike 
minus 170. It seems like Dawkins might oblige him on the feet. I don't know how smart that is. But if it does stay on the feet, you do tend to like Rosenstrike's accurate, Rosenstruck's accuracy a little bit better. Then we have the youngster, the 17-year-old who made his debut, Raul, excuse me, Raul Rosas Jr. taking on Jay Perrin. Rosas Jr., minus 230. I, I tend to think this is something along the lines of hand-picked opposition. They gave him a guy who's good, who's good. Um, you know, there's all kinds of questions about Rosas Jr.'s future that are very, very fair. But I don't know that this one is going to be the one that tells us a lot. UFC is pretty good about getting guys who are developmental, like two or three really good fights before they can turn up the heat on them. I think you saw that with Sage Northcutt. You saw that with Patty Pimblett, although Pimblett had a lot more experience before he got to UFC. But, you know, guys who are in need of development anyway. And um, I tend to think you'll get that with Raul Rosas Jr. So, you know, this fight or the next one may not necessarily tell you a whole lot either way, but... He should win. If he doesn't, we'll ask some questions afterwards. It's it's kind of a weird one. Uh, this is a big one. Edmund Shabazian, my Armenian brethren, minus 280, taking on Dolka Lungiambula at plus 235. Now, on the MMA, on Twitter asks, is it make or break for Edmund Shabazian? He has made significant changes, including his camp and management. I feel like this is a must-win for him at UFC 282, not only to keep his career alive, but mentally as well. Let's review exactly where he's been this whole time so you can understand it. Heading into this contest, let me pull up the stats here, if I may. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Dolka Lungiambula, by the way, best traps in the sport. I mean, this guy's trapezius muscles go to the ceiling. Uh, amazing. But he takes a lot of punishment. 3.66 to a uh, absorbed, 3.18 landed in terms of strikes per minute. So he's got a negative differential. Striking accuracy, just 44%, 44% not very high. Now, Shabazian has a negative differential, 3.24 to 4.13, but a lot of that is from ground and pound as well, not so much like on the feet at range, which is where this is going to be a bigger issue. Uh, in terms of takedowns, 2.71 for Shabazian. He does like to mix it up that way. Lugiambula, 2.41. So I do think takedown defense is going to get tested here either way. Neither has amazing takedown defense, although Lungiambula a little bit better, 77% to the 57% for Shabazian. But to the point, to the person's question, this is Shabazian. This is the place he's entered this in. He had the win over Marshman and that amazing win over Brad Tavares. Then he had a terrible loss to Brunson. Then a terrible loss to Hermanson. And then a pretty bad loss to Imavov. By contrast, Lugiambula not in a much better position. He had the loss to Ankalaev. Then he had the win over Perez. He had the loss to Berrio, the loss to Brundage. And then the loss to Soriano. I tend to think on the feet, even with all the issues, Shabazian is way better than Lugiambula. And on the ground, like he's a powerhouse Lugiambula, but he's not exactly like a finesse guy, which to me is like if Shabazian has really worked on getting up, not so much fighting off of his back, which I think is a disaster. You saw him try to do that a little bit against Derek Brunson. Brunson's much better than Lugiambula, but still like not, a, not a great call. Um, I think this is a winnable fight for him. I do. Both guys, though, are going to be desperate here. Both guys riding three fight losing streaks in the UFC. Folks, I'll tell you, back when like Dan Hardy was fighting and, and that era, if you had three consecutive losses in the UFC, that almost always meant getting your walking papers. Almost always. Today's a different day, and we've seen guys have much longer losing streaks. It's not the same, and I think that's good. I think having a more flexible 
maybe humane policy is a better idea. But nevertheless, these two guys are going to be intensely motivated to get this win. The difference is that Shabazian should have enough takedown defense, should have enough scramble ability, and then certainly on the feet, much better, crisper, cleaner, more accurate, well-timed striking. This is going to be Shabazian's fight to lose. The only way he loses this, well, I won't say the only way, if he can't stop the takedown, I think A, he'll lose the fight, and then B, it would not speak well to his development. He should really be rounding the corner at this point. He should be at a stage in his career um, to be able to do something like that. He, he should be better. His takedown defense should be further along by now. I think is the way I would put that. His takedown defense should be further along. So I guess we'll see. All right. Uh, let me see some of the questions here that you guys have. Again, uh, other fights on the card. You have Chris Curtis taking on Joaquin Buckley. Chris Curtis plus 135 underdog. Joaquin Buckley minus 135. Very, very closely contested contest. Here's another one that folks aren't talking about that is huge, especially for both guys' futures. MK's favorite, Billy Quarantillo, taking on Alexander Hernandez. Quarantillo is favored, minus 165 to Hernandez, plus 140. I feel like Quarantillo's got a little bit more offensive oomph to his game at this stage anyway than Hernandez did. Can you believe Hernandez came in in his first two wins? He viciously KO'd both OAM and Benil Dariush. It's like, you just can't believe this was the space this dude was in. But okay, um, minus 110 TJ Brown to Eric Silva. It's the different Eric Silva to plus 110. Or excuse me, both. it's a pick of minus 110 in both directions. Vinicia Salvador taking on Daniel Da Silva. And then Cameron Simon taking on Steven Kozlow. Uh, some undercard questions from the fans. Jared Holt asks, top undercard fighter not getting as much attention as deserved. Anyone with hammer potential? Quarantillo. For sure, Quarantillo is going to be one of those. Shabazian is a big one. Obviously, all eyes are on Raul Rosas Jr. I'm trying to think of anyone else. Yeah, and then the, anything from the Quarantillo... Hernandez, Curtis Buckley, Shabazian, Lugiambula, Rosas, Perrin, Rosenstruck, Dawkins. Any of those are all pretty great prelim card fights. Like, nothing's wrong with any of those. Uh, and then I think Kate or Katie asks, which fighter on the UFC 282 card would BC say has the biggest BDE? <laughs> Got to be Lugiambula, right? Have you seen that dude's back? Fucking looks like a turtle shell. That dude's so muscular. Absolutely nuts. All right, um, let's do this read that we have to do, and then we're going to bring in, I think, Dan in just a few moments. I want to remind everyone, we have Bellator 289 tonight, UFC 282 tomorrow. These cards, of course, have hashtag Hammer of the Month potential all over them. As you know, Aaron Blanchfield was our very first Hammer of the Month winner. That happened last month. And for all of those who've been living under a rock the past few episodes, you should know that our favorite show sponsor, Money Lion, the only money app you'll ne ever need, uh, we have a brand new segment where we give recognition to up-and-coming fighters. The hammer of the month can be a boxer or MMA fighter on the rise that's not getting the recognition they deserve. Each Monday, we plan to highlight our nominees on the show and pick one winner at the end of every month to reward with the epic hammer trophy, which you guys saw, that they can show off to their friends and family. When you are watching fights over the weekend, let us know which fighters deserve this sweet award. Just hop onto your go-to social platform and tell us who you think should be nominated by tagging at MoneyLion on Twitter or at Money Lion Inc. on IG, and using the hashtag Hammer of the Month. Uh, to learn more, go to MoneyLion.com slash Morning Combat. Again, that's MoneyLion.com slash Morning Combat. Now, let me do a bit of a favor for myself here. Let me turn this back up so I can hear everyone. 
There we are. Very good. All right, we're waiting on Dan Canobio. I think he's around. You guys, if you don't follow his stuff, it's pretty interesting, actually. He does a show kind of like MK. I don't know if it's the uh, boxing version of it because we do boxing here and it's his own little thing. But he does it with Chris Algieri. And, dude, if you haven't heard Chris Algieri's analysis, like, it's pretty good. Chris Algieri fought Pacquiao. Chris Algieri has seen some shit, you know. He understands. And I think he's trained with some MMA guys as well, so he's not like a hater on the boxing side. Um, anyway, they do that show over at a place called John Boy Media, and uh, it's great. I follow him on Twitter. I really like their stuff. They do great social media assets. They do all kinds of fun stuff. So um, we're waiting on him. We'll get him in just a second. Let me get a sip of this delicious rain energy drink. Mm. People ask what my favorite flavor is. This one is cherry limeade. It's not my favorite. I got it because it's all that Target had when I was at Target the other day. Uh, my favorite is um, orange creamsicle. That's, that's the LT go-to right there, orange creamsicle. That one will get you going in the morning, boy, believe me. Mm. Okay. Um, while we're waiting for Dan, let's go ahead and get to Bellator. There's no need to wait. We'll, we'll pause if we have to and then come back to it. But for right now, let's talk about Bellator. Bellator 289 is tonight on Showtime. So, by the way, I'm going to be on CBS Sports HQ today at 1.30, today at 6.30, and after the fights. So, if you want some analysis for old B-more, not B-more, that's Baltimore, but for old BMMA, you can check me out on CBS Sports HQ. Yeah? All right. Your main event. How about this one? Ralphian Stotts taking on Danny Sabatello. These dudes have been all over each other in terms of nasty things said, doing media tours together. Minus 140 for Stotts, Sabatello plus 120. So this is an interesting one. Now, unfortunately, you guys know me. I love the stats, but we don't have stats for Bellator very easily accessible. So I had to go back and watch as many fights as I could to get ready for today and just sort of be better prepared. And... I will tell you, this is a this is a tough one to call. Both guys only have one loss. Now, here is what we know about Danny Sabatello. Sabatello has really good wrestling. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, he can chain attacks together. Two, this is a thing that I don't think he should do. But he does do it. And he does it in a way where um, he gets away with it. So it like becomes this like special weapon. Dude, he shoots from a mile away. A mile away. I, I've said it at the top of the show. I'm going to say it again. How far away should you be for a double leg? I should be able to reach out and touch you. And I don't mean like, uh, like out that way. I mean like shoulder square. I can reach out and touch you like that. That is how far you want to be away for a double leg. That is proper distancing. He'll do it far outside of that. And then that won't necessarily get the takedown, although sometimes it will. But even in cases where it doesn't, he chains it together. He stays on top of you. He talks a lot about his striking. I don't know that he wants to. I, I am sure his striking is better than his critics imagine it to be. But nevertheless, I um, I don't think it's going to be really useful here. I don't think he's going to make it a big part. Because if he does, I think Stotts will sleep him. So the question you have to ask yourself is, as we talked about with Big John on Wednesday, how big of a deal is it that there's a cardio component because it's five rounds? And how big of a deal is it for everything else, right, in terms of takedown defense? We're going to have Dan here in just a minute, so stand by. But let me answer one of these questions real quickly as we get him situated. 
The cardio obviously is important because how long can a guy wrestle like that unless he can get to the back and hold it? Can Stotts defend the takedown? Against Archuleta, he got a takedown in the first round, but after that, he found it very, very, very difficult to get one. And by the way, Stotts got his own. So even though Archuleta was able to get it, Stotts was able to get back up pretty quickly or at least nullify any negative impact from it and then create separation. And then against Magomed Magomedov, he was able to get takedowns and the back and kind of outwork him along the way to get it. So against two very good wrestlers, what you saw was even if they were able to get him down, they weren't able to hold it very much. He can reverse, put a lot of other things together. And on the other, on the other side, what he can do is he can go on the offense himself. He can get the takedown himself. And then on the feet, forget it. On the feet, he's tremendous. He's much, much better. Think about the head kick that he got to this point by head kicking Juan Archuleta, who, by the way, is like a former champ in that weight class. I mean, just understand that. That's the kind of guy we're talking about here. Uh, all right, so let's hit the pause button on Bellator. We will come back to it in just a minute. Let's bring in our guest today. Uh, you guys might, if you've ever heard of CompuBox, then you have certainly used uh, this gentleman's services, but he's in a lot of different places. I watch this show. I love it. Inside Boxing Live on John Boy Media. It's the one and only Dan Canobio. Hi, Dan. Luke, what is going on? Uh, first off, thank you for having me. Second off, congratulations. Second off, is that even a thing? Congratulations <laughs> on uh, your guys' award. Two years in a row, best media, MMA programming. Awesome. You guys do great work. Uh, and I'm ready to talk some, some boxing. Fun fact, uh, I'm here at John Boy Media offices. Uh, there's a lock on our studio. At 11.50, I went out to go use the bathroom and locked the door behind me. And for the last 15 minutes, the entire company was trying to figure out a way to get the door open. Because my laptop is in here, my phone is in here. I couldn't reach out to anyone on your guys' end to tell them that we're... But one of our guy, Rob, just literally used a drill and drilled through the lock of the door. And I just slipped in here. Oh and I'm ready to, uh, ready to roll. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, committing crimes to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, we don't have a moment to waste, so let's get right to it. I'm going to say it's the big fight, but it's really not the big fight. But I want to lead with Terrence Crawford taking on uh, David Avenison. I mean, we have talked about this story ad nauseum about how the fight with Spence fell through very quickly. And yes, you know, we're a CBS Showtime affiliated thing. But like, what do you make of what happened between Bud Crawford and and why he's on BLAK Prime, whatever the fuck that is, fighting Evan Eason and not fighting Spence. What went wrong? Money, 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 money. It's the, the root of all issues in, in life, but especially in boxing. When it's a free enterprise, much uh, it's different than uh, MMA um, for, for the most part. But he was offered a large sum of money to fight a B or C level fighter in David Evanessian. And there's no disrespect to David Evanessian, but he's just not on the same level as Terrence Crawford, I host my show with Chris Algieri, uh, former uh, world champion, and I asked him, I was like, how many boxers, you included, would take $10 million, so we said, like, so they say they're giving him $10 million, uh, five up front is what Crawford said he already got, to fight a B-level fighter, and he said 10 out of 10 fighters would do that. So when the fight broke down, the negotiations between Spence and Crawford, which all fight uh, fights of that stature tend to break down at times before getting back on and then ultimately happening. He had that offer in, the, in his back pocket. He ultimately took it. And then now we're looking at a BLK Prime pay-per-view uh, between the pound-for-pound -pound best fighter in the world versus a guy who was, last I checked, was a minus 1,400 underdog. <laughs> All right. 
What do we know at all? Again, I'm going to mispronounce his name. David Avanesian? That's correct. Yeah, what do we know about him? Like, give us a scouting report. He has very little profile at all. I mean, uh, a guy, he's a Russian fighter that has been fighting in the UK as of late. Uh, this is a massive step up in, in competition uh, for Avanesian. The, I think the, the toughest opponent he faced was Lamont Peterson, uh, which was in 2017. He fought Mean Machine, uh, who gave Crawford issues, but he ultimately got stopped uh, by Mean Machine. He's got, like, you know, I crunched the numbers and I look, pull, pulled up a profile on him. None of his numbers really jump out at you. You know, 50 punches around, which is underneath the welterweight average. Uh, lands 30% of his uh, shots, which is right around average. Gets hit a lot. So there, there's really nothing that jumps out at the screen at me. He's a tough, durable fighter. But, I mean, he's going up against one of the best fighters in the world. So to, really, to answer your question, there isn't a lot most boxing fans know about uh, David Evanesian. How much is the pay-per-view? Is it like 50 bucks or more? Last I heard, it was 40 um, which is, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't like to get into like what's a, what constitutes as a pay-per-view, what doesn't, because everything in the boxing world these days is a, a, a pay-per-view, and it's up to the consumer if they want to buy it. Uh, a lot of uh, people illegally stream it. I would never uh, tell anyone to do that, but that's something that happens a lot in both MMA and, and boxing, but I think it's 40 bucks. 40 bucks. Okay. I mean, what do you know about BLK Prime? I mean, BC seems to not know jack shit about them, and I don't think he's alone. BC knows nothing about BLK. Uh, DC <laughs> knows nothing about BLK. Uh, it's, we've seen this a lot in boxing where these entities literally come out of nowhere. Uh, just uh, last month or earlier, again, November, Regis Progre uh, won a world title, 140 pounds, uh, beating uh, Jose Cepeda, and that was on Marv Nation. And when Marv Nation came out of practically nowhere to win that purse bid, the memes were hilarious. Marv from Home Alone, who the heck is Marv, Marv Albert. And then we get to fight week or fight day, and, you know, it's, it looked okay. And, uh, you know, everyone seemed to get paid in, in the end. But I don't know much about BLK Prime. Uh, a lot of these uh, companies see boxing as a way to, as a low point of entry, business-wise. Uh, this is a way we can get a lot of attention for our app or, or pro, uh, product, I don't even know what it is. Uh, they threw, gave Crawford $10 million. I mean, you don't have to be a mathematician or major in business to know that they're probably gonna lose a lot of money on this fight. Yeah, they're gonna take a bath financially. <laughs> Safe to say. So, uh, the big question in everyone's mind is not what's gonna happen. Crawford's probably gonna beat the fucking brakes off of him, right, in all, in all likelihood. Yeah. And also, it's in it's in his home it's in his home state uh, in in Nebraska. It'll be in, in Omaha. So mm -hmm. the question is not so much that. The question is, to what extent do you, Dan, have confidence that this goes as it's more or less supposed to? There's no shenanigans or whatever. Does this, in your mind, ultimately lead to a fight with Spence, or is that just as uncertain as ever? I think it's just as uncertain as ever. Sadly. Um... I'm an, uh, an optimist, especially in the boxing world. People say it's uh, to a fault. Um, I try to find the, the, the positive in the boxing world, which is not easy to do. Uh, I was pretty confident that Spence Crawford was going to happen in November. I was also confident that it was going to happen in February. I'm sure you heard from the same people uh, that I did. Uh, I just don't know anymore. I think Crawford is, is such a wild card. Um, going back to his top-ranked days, I heard things uh, with, very difficult to deal with. Uh, you know, some of the things he tweets, like, business-wise, like, when he went on uh, Instagram Live, like, he was all over the place. Hedge money, like, uh, unspecified hedge money, and 
he just has not made a lot of wise business choices in his life, uh, in uh, fighting life. He's made a lot of money. You know, Top Rank was giving him close to four or five million a fight, and we've seen his resume. It's nothing. It's it's not the greatest resume. I think Crawford's the wild card here. If Crawford wants the fight to happen, I think there's a way to make it happen. Uh, you know, Showtime. Not just, I'm not just saying this because I'm on a, on a Showtime show, but they have a long history of making big fights, like making big pay-per-view fights. They know what they're doing. So the, that side of the street is secure and ready to put this fight on. It's Crawford that's the, the wild card in this. Do you think he's pound for pound best? Because I got to tell you, like, this is the thing that always bothers me. It's like, it's obviously if you watch him, right? Obviously, if you watch him, his talent jumps off this fucking screen. I mean, he yeah. is so gifted. He is so exceptional. But to your point of late, not so much in the previous weight class, but in this one, the resume has been thin and he's getting a little bit older. What is the case for him to actually be the pound for pound number one fighter in the world? I tend to not do pound for pound lists because they have gotten so out of control. Is it a popularity contest? Is it what has it you done for me lately? Is it resume? Is it skills? I think the way it was intended originally was, you know, can a flyweight beat a heavyweight just based off of pure skill? And so it gets they're getting kind of ridiculous. Um, I do think he is in the top five any way you want to cut it. I think him, Usyk, Spence, uh, in a way, uh, Fury just outside of it. Um, probably missing some canelo i think if you're in that top five then you're a damn good fighter the thing with crawford is his resume like you like you said his best win is at 147 is arguably sean porter and sean porter is a damn good fighter but sean porter also retired immediately after the fight his own father threw him under the bus and said that he didn't train hard for this fight you know crawford has shown a few cracks in the armor especially on defense getting up there he's 35 years old but he's still damn good, like you said. He ranks third in power connect rate, 47%. That's only 0.5 away from being the best uh, power puncher in all of boxing. He only gets hit with 7.5 punches per round. But the caveat in all these numbers is the resume. So uh, obviously Spence would be the, the best opponent he's ever fought. And, and quite frankly, I think he has to fight Spence. He needs that fight to solidify himself as an all-time great. In his mind, he has already said that uh, my legacy is set. I'm happy with my legacy, and that has pissed off fans, too. Uh, I think there's a lot more that he can do, even when he's 35 in the next like two to three years. Number one would be fighting Spence, and I think a lot of people would edge him to beat Spence. All right. Um, do you have any strong thoughts about the co-main on this card, Arnold Guy <laughs> taking on Eduardo Baez? Uh, the only th strong thoughts I have on the co-main is uh, Chris Cyborg boxing. Uh, yes. That's your world. Chris Cyborg is, dude. Is, is, you know what's funny about this is like in the MMA world, no one's really talking about this. I don't know why, but Chris Cyborg is fighting Gabby Holloway. Cyborg, a a just a meager minus five thousand favorite. Yeah, not a lot of value on this card, Luke. Uh, unless you want to launder some money, and then not a lot of value. But um, my co-host uh, Chris uh, Algeri, he sparred uh, or see, have seen Cyborg spar uh, down in, in in South Florida, and says that she she just hits like a mule. Um, I mean, there was rumors of her potentially fighting Katie Taylor in Ireland. I don't know where that can be. I'm I'm intrigued by it. I'm, I'm I love women's boxing, um, but that's the only thing that jumped off uh, the page at me when I took a look at the uh, the fight card. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so let's get to the other one. Now, this is a legitimate fight. Teofimo Lopez Jr. is back, ladies and gentlemen. This, of course, will be on ESPN+, Plus, not BLK Prime. So if you're an ESPN <laughs> Plus subscriber for UFC or for any other reasons, you can watch this one. Taking on Sandor Martin. Okay, Dan, 
Give us the breakdown here. Our audience is pretty familiar with Teofimo Lopez, but they don't know a lot about Sandor. What can you tell us? Sandor is a spoiler. Um, he is a boxer puncher. Uh, he beat Mikey Garcia. And look, you know this in fighting. When a fighter, you know, takes a long layoff, a fighter's talking about retirement, never a good thing. You know the old adage, like, he had one foot out the door? Mikey Garcia had nine toes out the door. And Sandor Martin delivered that uh, the final blow, and Mikey Garcia retired uh, right after the fight. But he did beat Mikey Garcia. That's a huge win for Sandor Martin. I spoke to him this earlier this week at the uh, press conference uh, for, for this fight, and he seems very confident because he's taken the fight on short notice. He's got nothing to lose, never been in New York City. Uh, it's a dream of his to fight at Madison Square Garden. But, you know, that's all the stuff, like, outside, the mental stuff. Inside the ring, he's going to try to slow down the fight to a crawl. Against Mikey Garcia, he only threw 23 punches around. Astronomically low, but he fought it at his pace. That's the pace he wants to fight Tiafimo at. And Tiafimo, on the other end, I know we'll get to him in a second, can be frustrated inside of the ring. He is a knockout puncher. He's an entertainer. He wants to go for knockouts. He might be chasing around Sandor Martin for the first half of this fight. I'm not saying Martin's going to win, but I think he's going to give Tiafimo some really solid rounds at 140. All right, so with Lopez, let's talk about him for just a second here. Loses to Cambosis Jr. in a huge shocker. We were all watching that live. We couldn't believe what we were looking at, but then again, mm -hmm. we could because... Lopez is kind of a mess at times, at times. Then he comes back against Pedro Campa, and he looks pretty good. So here's what I want you to, to answer for me. One, what, why in your mind did he lose to Cambosis, who then got dummied by Haney? And two, in your mind, how good did he look in his return against Campa? Well, Tiafimo lost to Cambosis because he had literally the worst game plan I've ever seen in a boxing ring. He had no plan A. He had absolutely no plan B. He went in there to knock his head off, and that played right into Cambosis' hands. That's what happened inside the ring. He was knocked down in the first round and then was playing catch-up for the rest of the fight and ultimately lost in one of the biggest upsets of last year. What happened outside of the ring I think is a little more telling and, and it probably... What that happened outside the ring leads into what happened inside of the ring. His personal life is, is really spiraled out of control, sadly. Uh, Tiafimo is someone that I got to know uh, personally when he first came, burst onto the scene, considered him a friend. Uh, you know, things happened with his family. Uh, I heard about things in his training camp, cutting corners. Uh, didn't have the best corner in there besides his dad. His dad wasn't really giving good instructions. It was a disaster. It was just a disaster all around. Uh, I also do think, in a weird way, that it was like, very humbling for him because he just beat Lomachenko on top of the world, Bud Light promotions, this, that, and the other, all this money, and then it comes crashing down. And one minute he's the man, the next day, you know, he's they're kind of laughing at him because he thought afterwards that he won the fight. Um, but against Campa, that was the second part, he is a new weight class. And I think what he's learning now at 140 is that he doesn't have the same power that he did at 135. At 135, Tiafimo Lopez had such an advantage over the rest of the field because he was so powerful. At 140, what we saw against Campa, he had to break him down. So I don't know if that's really Tiafimo's game in the long run. It might work in this fight against Martin, but against you know the Josh Taylors, against the Regis Progres, uh, Devin Haney if he moves up to 140. There's a ton of fighters moving up to 140. Tank eventually I think will be there. Ryan Garcia. I don't know if Tiafimo has that one-punch power at 140, more of a matriculation, and I haven't really seen that facet of his game yet. Do you think there's anything to the idea that, like, the the Compa fight didn't give us a full sense of things and that, like, over time he could settle more easily into this weight class and then some of your power concerns, not that they're wrong per se, but that he could grow out of them? 
Yeah, of course. You know, he's still 23 or 24. Uh, you know, you know, I do believe you're born with power. He has a lot of it. Uh, you know, there's always ways to work on it at 140. Uh, but we'll see. That's the best part of the sport, you know, MMA and boxing. It's going to play out inside of the ring. Uh, Sandor, the last fight with Campa was his first at 140. It was also his first in like 14 or 15 months. So it's really hard to judge him off that. I still think he found his rhythm like midway through the fight. And then he looked really sharp. I think with Martin, we're going to learn a lot about TFM on 142 because this guy's crafty. Southpaw, uh, he's going to go in there to spoil. He's going to go in there to muck it up. He's going to go in there and move around. And like I said earlier, TFM is he goes for knockouts. The first time I met him, uh, when he was you know 13 and all, we heard about a little bit of him on the scene. Was I come to entertain? And how do you entertain in boxing? You don't. Uh, it's not really entertaining to some to go the distance and get your hand raised. Entertaining to deliver a knockout punch on ESPN on Heisman night and do a backflip after, which he has done uh, many times. So I'm interested to see how he deals with like Martin's movement. All right. Also on this card, the name that stands out to me, and obviously if there's something else I'm missing, by all means let me know. But the name that I, I BC and I have talked about him on the show just a little bit, so I don't know how familiar our audience is, but you know him quite well, or at least I should say the boxing audience is very familiar with him. All eyes are on him. Xander Zayas. Xander mm. Zayas is taking on Alexis Salazar. For the folks who don't know, tell them about Xander and why the boxing world is so high on him. This kid is the goods, man. Um, Top Rank has one of the best young uh, stables in all of boxing, and Xander Zayas is right at the top of it. For a while, Top Rank was really pushing Edgar Berlanga. Um, as a New York guy, it's a, more importantly, as a Puerto Rican fighter in the New York market, is huge. Just look at what Miguel Cotto did at the Garden year after year, especially uh, on that June weekend, the night before the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Berlanga was supposed to be that guy, and ESPN was giving him a ton of, of push and, and top rank as well. Xander Zayas is that guy. He's 20 years old. He's a 154-pounder with every punch in the book, the timing, the power, charisma. You know, I, I talked to Tim Bradley uh, now who just got inducted to the Hall of Fame who works for top rank in ESPN. He is very high on Xander Zayas. I am too. This whole card, this undercard is really good. Uh, Zayas is one guy uh, that the entire boxing world has already known about, and he's only going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Uh, what about that co-main? I, candidly, I don't know much about either of these guys. Jared Anderson and Jerry Forrest. Any value to that? Or is that, or is there a different oh, fight you care more about? This is, this is a really good fight. Jared Anderson, we're talking about up-and-coming stars. Heavyweight, 25 years old, American. A lot of that right there is good, and a lot of that there is unique. Because if you look around the heavyweight division right now, Luke, Usyk, 36 years old. Fury, 33 years old. Wilder, 37. Joyce, 37. Joshua, 37. The youngest established heavyweight in boxing right now is Andy Ruiz, and he's 33. So Jared Anderson at 25 has the goods, the power, the athleticism, got a lot of charisma. He came, his ring walks have become a thing now. One time he came out as a pimp, uh, doing a pimp walk, and uh, he's really good. And he's young and he's American, and I think uh, that there's a lot going there. His opponent, Jerry Forrest, is upset-minded type of guy. He's been in there tough. Um, he's fought... He fought to a draw with Zhang. He fought to a draw with Michael Hunter. He went the distance with Kubert Pulov. Went the distance with Carlos Takam. Split decision loss to Jermaine Franklin. Jermaine Franklin just nearly beat Dillian White uh, last month. If Anderson can knock out Jerry Forrest, then I think the hype train is only going to get bigger. Uh, I will. T what about Dubois? When you say established heavyweights, are you excluding Dubois when you say no. that? No. 
That's a good call by you. I, I would. Dubois pretty young. He fought last week. Did you see what happened there? He got knocked yeah, yeah. down. He, he almost got fucked over, or he almost messed <laughs> it up. But he did. He persevered. He persevered. No, yeah, he's good. He's definitely good. Uh, he he lost to Joyce, and that shouldn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. He should get right back on it. That fight was bizarre. The the, the one of the rounds ended uh, with ten seconds left. The judge, uh, the referee, waved off the fight at the bell. That fight was all over the place, but I do like Danny Dubois. I would add him on the short list of young, like under 30 heavyweights. Jared Anderson, Dubois, and Jalalov, this six foot eight Uzbek guy who's knocking everyone out who won Olympic gold at the last Olympics. BC loves him. He tells me about him all <laughs> BC time. loves him some Jalalov. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, he really does. It's funny. All right, well, just a few minutes we have remaining. I was actually at the Tank Davis, uh, Hector Luis Garcia presser here in my hometown in D.C. What was yeah. that, Monday, I think? Let me ask you, I got to tell you, like, obviously most people expect Tank to win, mm-hmm. but it's, dude, it's not a tune-up fight, man. I'm not saying, like, Hector Luis Garcia is the toughest guy in the world, but he's an Olympian. He beat the shit out of Chris Colbert. Like, he's undefeated. You know, he's coming up a weight class, so there's a little bit of that, but, like, he didn't look substantially different in size. In fact, he had a bigger frame than Tank. What do you make of this challenge for Tank on January 7th? This is is pretty nuts to me. I was not expecting uh, Hector uh, Lopez to get uh, that, excuse me, Hector Garcia to get this assignment. Um, Especially with Ryan Garcia fight, you know, penciled in uh, for April, especially with some of the criticism that Tank gets for for his resume. I think this is the first time, it's ironic, I think the first time that fans would have been okay with a lighter touch for Javante Davis. Now I heard fans saying, this is this is too much for, for Tank. That's funny to me, like the, the, to see how quickly the fans will, will will switch on that. This guy's good, man. This guy, Hector Garcia, like you said, beat uh, Chris Colbert. He had another win too, I don't know why it's slipping my mind, but this guy is a champion at, uh, at his weight class. He is moving up, but you saw in person there, he is the bigger man on fight night, but Tank has no issues with, with bigger guys. Look what he did uh, in that fight when he moved up to, uh, to 140. Uh, to beat Barrios. Um, I ultimately think Tank's going to win. I think you would agree with that. But this will get him ready for Ryan Garcia. This is a big fight. It's a Showtime pay-per-view. So you got to come with a, a good opponent. And, you know, hats off to Tank. I think he's rewriting a lot of narratives in his career. All right. We'll let you go. But before we do, again, Inside Boxing Live, it's you and Chris Algieri. It's on John Boy Media. How can folks watch it if they're interested to get more? Yeah, you can watch over on, on YouTube at Inside Boxing Live YouTube page. You can listen, of course, uh, the podcast version on every single way you get podcasts these days. Uh, we just did our first ever John Boy Media Boxing Combine this week uh, with pitting four, I would say, average Joes that work here, uh, going through all the rigors of a boxing uh, workout, and then one lucky winner or unlucky winner uh, went on to fight Chris Algieri in the ring for three minutes. Oh, God. It was a bloodbath, Luke. Was there a three knockdown rule? Because I don't know if you're going to make it to the end of the round without that. You're going to have to tune in and watch when we put that out. It was... I work with a lot of... Um, my, a lot of my coworkers don't really know much about boxing, and, and I understand that. We staged a, a fight, and they were blown away by... And I think we made some boxing fans in the process. But yeah, you're going to want to tune into that. Uh, Inside Boxing Live. Hey, I'll talk about your guys' success, man. You guys are crushing it. Uh, Brian Campbell... I think before I edit Algeria as my permanent co-host, Brian Campbell, I think, has appeared on Inside Boxing Live like 13 or 14 times. He's got a gold jacket. So uh, I love BC as much as I like to rip on him. Uh, You guys are crushing it. Continued success. 
Hey, who's in better shape, BC or Chris Algieri? I can't tell. Oof, let me think. <laughs> um, I'm going. Uh, uh, it's tough. I'm gonna go with BC. I think uh, BC has taken um, that uh, gas station sushi out of his diet. Uh, he's on a lot of vacations. His, his mind is at ease. Yeah, I'll go with BC. Yeah, I think it's a fair call. Dan, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the show. I watch it all the time. I really do. Love having you on here. Enjoy uh, the fights this weekend, and I look forward to seeing what you and Chris have to say about it on Monday. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate the invite on the show. There he is, Dan Canobio. And, of course, for folks who want more from him beyond just Inside Boxing Live, how about CompuBox? CompuBox. That's the, that's the, the brains of the operation right there. Uh, all right, let's reset here for just a second. So we've talked about UFC. We've gotten you ready for the boxing over the weekend. we got to finish with what we had on Bellator. When I was talking about it last, we were talking about the Stotts and Sabatello, of course, the main event. Just to reset one more time, Stotts a minus 140, Sabatello a plus 120. And of course, as we indicated before, Sabatello, a dynamic wrestler who can shoot from far distances, even if it's not advisable, blah, blah, blah. But the question was about Stotts and can he defend it? This is a tough one. Sabatello had really good ground to pound against Jornel Lugo, but Lugo didn't have the same kind of ground game and athleticism, frankly, that Stotts did. And so, Sabatello, I think, is going to have to show us something new. I do believe that. I think his wrestling, like in pure wrestling terms, I do think he's better than Stotts. But are pure wrestling terms good enough against an opponent this experienced, this well-rounded, who also is a wrestling threat? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. We're going to have to see. Your co-main event, a rematch for the women's flyweight title. Liz Carmouche sitting at plus 145. Juliana Velasquez at a minus 170. What does this fight hinge on for me? Again, I went back and I watched their first fight. And what did you notice? Velasquez was, to me, a little bit timid. I think you're going to see her change that up a little bit. Not significantly. I don't think she's going to come out storming. But I don't think she's going to be quite on the back foot as she was before. I think you're going to see her... The question for Velasquez is, a lot, I think a lot of it's going to come down to footwork and how she positions herself. That's going to be a big part of it. The other one here is, and you know this if you saw the first fight, takedowns. Carmouche's takedowns were a big problem for Velasquez. She didn't have, like, I, I was amazed at how much her takedown defense just kind of crumbled once Liz got her hands on her. There didn't seem to be as much resistance as I thought there would be. And again, you heard Carmouche tell me in BC like, Velasquez didn't really use much of her judo. If you watch the first fight, there's like one time that's not true, but there's a lot, most of the time that was very true. I wonder about that. However, Velasquez, as I indicated, is favorite. What was the one thing I took away from the first fight? One, I think that some of the takedown issues could be fixed with footwork and some other choices that she makes. But two, and this is the big one, as the fight was wearing on, I thought Velasquez was taking control. I thought she was taking control behind her jab, I thought she was taking control behind her 1-2 at distance, and I didn't see Carmouche have a real big answer for it. This is going to be a function of space and who defines the terms of it. If it's a case where they're close together, Carmouche probably can win this one, probably will win this one, frankly. If it's spaced further apart and Velasquez is cutting angles, punching behind the jab, uh, even if she's moving backwards, although I do think moving forwards will be more beneficial for her long term in that fight, uh, I think she'll win. I just don't see that necessarily changing a whole lot from that fight to this one. The question is, will she get it done? I tend to think she probably will. I will side again. These odds are close: plus one forty-five to minus one seventy. Excuse me. Yes, plus one forty-five to minus one seventy. That's you know we're not talking about a major difference here. 
You know, we're not talking about uh, a huge gap in skill or something like that, or a huge gap in in what the other one poses as a threat anyway. So I, I'm going to side with Velasquez because just of the way the first fight went. But if, you know, if you see Carmouche able to get into like any kind of body lock or underhook position, I think Velasquez is going to be in trouble. I, I I was shocked at how easily Carmouche was able to get her to the ground. Could be a big problem for her. We'll see. The other side of the bantamweight bracket, so we're going to see who the other finalist is between Stotts and Sabatello. That's one finalist, right? And then on the other side, it's Mix and Magomed Magomedov. Now, this is a tough one. This is a really tough one. Listen to these odds. Patchy Mix, plus 105. Magomedov, minus 125. An ever so slight favorite. An ever so slight. Patchy Mix, I said this on Wednesday. I'm going to repeat it again today enormous for the weight class. I could not believe he was a bantamweight. I've seen many bantamweights in person. He might be, in terms of frame, the biggest one. And if you go back and look at their weigh-in photos or weigh-in video, you'll see he towers, to an extent anyway, uh, over Magomedov. And here you're seeing these videos now of Patchy Mix against Horiguchi. See, this is the problem with looking at this fight and being like, oh, well, Magomedov is more well-rounded. Yeah, he is. Magomedov is more well-rounded. Dude, Kyoji Horiguchi was a Bellator champion, a Ryzen champion, one of the best bantamweights on earth, and he couldn't do shit about the backpacking, back-taking ability of Patchy Mix. It was overwhelming for him. And I didn't see that coming either. I was shocked at how good it was. Dude, he creates just a little bit of back exposure, and it's, it's curtains for you. Now, he may not get the submission, but you're not getting back up. You're not. A very dedicated, good, solid back attacker in patchy mix. And a guy like Magomedov, to me, is very talented. And again, clearly more well-rounded. Clearly. Can just do more things. <sighs> Can he really stop the back attacks and the forward pressure of a guy like patchy mix enough? I don't know. I, I, the odds makers think that it's a slight lean towards Magomedov, which I understand. I do. But Patchy Mix has been the guy in this tournament. Everyone's like, oh, he's good, but he's not going to get past Kyoji Horiguchi. Oh, he's good, but he can't do X or Y. I think that's a little foolish. I really don't trust that analysis. I don't agree with it at all. I, I, I don't know, man. Patchy Mix is a guy where, you know, it's like, well, he, he might be one trick pony is a little bit dismissive. But he's certainly got one part of his game that clearly outshadows the other ones. Even the other ones are pretty good. And that's a very, very important part of the game, too. I I, I don't know. I, I, I might like Patchy Mix's chances here. It's hard to say, man. A lot of these are coin flip-ish. But I might go with him. And so if you actually get like a Stotts or a Sabatello, a, uh, let's think about that. If you got Mix, well, first of all, if you got Stotts versus Magomedov, you get a rematch. If you got Stotts versus Mix, that's a tough fight for Mix as well. But Stotts has... It's a tough fight for Mix as well. But again, his, if he can do that to Kyojo Horiguchi, what bantamweight could he not do it to? Is really the question you have to ask yourself. Right? That's sort of where I'm at on this one. It's the first thing I'd say. If you got Magomedov versus Sabatello, that's an interesting one. But we saw Stotts out-wrestle Magomedov, so Sabatello might be able to do that, especially if he got past Stotts. St Sabatello versus Mix is the really interesting one because you saw Ego 
Leandro Ego gets Sabatello's back and ride it out for a long period of time as well. And I think that's second round, something like that. So that could be a really interesting one. In either case, you just, I think all roads for Patchy Mix to victory lead through the back. Again, doesn't have to have it every single round for four minutes. That's not what I'm saying. But just what he can do with it and how how long he can keep it and how just easy it is for him to find it, it just makes him a really, really tough customer. Um, also on this card, as I mentioned, Dalton Rasta. If you've never seen him, the guy that looks like he's built like a Greek god. Taking on Anthony Adams. Denise Kilholtz, minus 155. Taking on Ilara Joanna, plus 135. Kilholtz, to me, I think was a member of the Dutch national judo team. Great kickboxer, like a legitimately great kickboxer. Uh, but tends to be a little bit error-prone. Something to pay attention to. She is the favorite. Don't get me wrong. She is the favorite uh, against Joanne. And I do think is better than Joanne. And I think has fought and defeated, in general, in general, better opposition. But um, that's a very close fight as well. Cody Law is on, on this card at minus 225, taking on Chris Lencioni. This is the big one as well. I talked about it with Big John on Wednesday. Kyle Crutchmer, Oklahoma State, two-time Big 12 champion, two-time All-American, uh, minus 230, taking on Jaleel Willis at plus 135. Dude, Jaleel Willis, I cannot overstate this. He came off the regional scene with a ton of buzz. It was kind of like a big get for him to end up in Bellator and not go on like to the UFC or something like that and has just not exactly looked the way I think a lot of us thought he would. Did early on, but then the last two fights have just been, ugh. Kyle Crutchmer is a big, strong kid. That is a fight he should not lose. And if he does win it, some real questions for the future of Jaleel Willis. Um, Kai, Kai, Kai Kamaka III, a Extreme Couture guy, big Eric Nixick guy. By the way, shouts to Eric Nixick. We ran into him in the hotel lobby in Connecticut when we were there on Wednesday. Uh, minus 265, he's taking on Kevin Bohm. And then there's a few. Pat Downey, minus 1,500, taking on Christian Eccles at plus 900. All right, we end the show today with just a little bit of talk about Patty Pimblett. He had a huge dust-up with Ariel Hawani, who, by the way, congratulations to him. He wins Journalist of the Year Award, I think 13 years in a row, something absurd. Um, I spoke a lot about this on my live chat yesterday, but there's been a little bit of an update to it. Our own Shaquille Majori actually spoke to Patty Pimblett about, in particular, the Ariel beef after Ariel said, excuse me, after... Patty said what he said, and from Ariel's response. So this is Patty talking to Shaq after hearing what Ariel had to say in response to Patty. I want to react to it. Let's hear what Patty had to say. You had a podcast with Dana White. I think the internet kind of blew up about it. Um, when you were saying that UFC fighters should be compensated for their time. No, what I was off. saying was yes. Ariel wanted me to not do a paid gig to do something for free with him. And somehow... People are defending him. Simple, that's it. Simple as. I don't need to talk about it anymore because that's just a fact. He's come out with his false narrative and made a big... Said it didn't bother him, but has done an hour and 15-minute video about it. So, you know, we, we know it's bothered him. He's had to lie and make himself look good reading out private messages. But we'll address this after the fight. Me and my manager, don't use worry. We've got all the stuff there and he's going to look like an idiot. Okay, so you will address the the voice memo that he put out after the fight. Yeah, the voice memo where I said, do you want to meet up? Didn't once mention an interview. Said, do you want to meet up to like have a drink or have something to eat as like a friend? But, you know, he, didn't, he obviously never saw me as a friend where I saw him as a friend. He only ever saw me as pound signs and dollar signs. 
I was always just a commodity to him. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I would say um, that does, if what he's saying is true there, and again, I don't, I have no way of knowing one way or the other. I heard some of the stuff that was played, but you know, I've not heard his long-term presentation of, of the dispute. What I would say is, on backing up a step, he's not saying he wanted Ariel, according to this, according to this, he's not saying he wanted Ariel to pay him. He's saying Ariel wanted him to do a free interview, so to speak versus a paid gig not that he wanted ariel to match that or maybe i i'm not sure what graham boylan his manager said uh, how it all went down i can't remember the full details but that's that's his claim here again i guess we'll see what information he has folks have asked like should you pay for an interview again it does happen in the industry especially with content creators and i'm, I'm not using the word that patty used in like the, the pejorative sense what i mean to say is like they're there are folks in the media space who are not actually interested in journalism per se, but what they do looks a lot like it, except it's looser, it's friendlier, it's got some conflict of interest. I think a lot of what we do is a little bit more in line with that, quite frankly. I don't know how BC feels about that necessarily. but um, And they don't necessarily abide by the same kind of rules, and so they don't mind you know paying for guests to come on, and it can be a thing. Especially, by the way, in the UK, uh, it's quite common, actually. It is a thing that they do. In pure journalistic standards, it's not a thing you would never do. You would never do that by if you're under the, the rubric of pure journalism because it would corrupt the relationship. It turns it into a transactional one, which in some sense it kind of already is, but it makes it explicit and, and by definition that only thing, um, and it can corrupt the information that you get. It's just you can get a lot of unreliable things that happen when you begin to pay for it in a lot of ways. So that would be the argument there. In terms of everything else about it, again, mostly what I had to say I said on the live chat, but I think I would I would just remind folks of a couple of things here. One, this is a sort of dispute between these guys, and there's a lot of details that neither of us know, and um, I, I, I can't speak on that. I will say on the Ariel side of things, I'm like a guy who's actually worked with Ariel. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to say I know him better than anybody else, because that's not true at all. Um, you know, we don't talk regularly or anything. I saw him in Phoenix, and we spoke briefly there, and he actually joined us on the Showtime weigh-in feed for this was the uh, Jake Paul-Anderson Silva fight. So I saw him recently, we talked, and uh, obviously, you know, he and I had sort of a public, well, we didn't really have a dispute, but we had a private dispute that the public knew about, but we have since talked about it, and there's that. Um, and so that, that's no longer our, the defining nature of our relationship. But I worked with the guy for a long time. I worked with the guy for a long time. The thing I said on my live chat that I would just impart to folks who don't understand Ariel or don't know the way he works, it's like, dude, you got to be real careful about picking fights with him. You got to be real careful. Listen, no one is above fair criticism. Me, BC, Ariel, producers, Patty Pimblett, anyone. Anyone is available for fair criticism. And I guess ultimately the audience will decide exactly how fair it is. From what I can tell, and I think I would agree largely with them, uh, Ariel has done much better about making his case to this point. I, I would certainly say that. But I, what I've noticed is just a lot of people think they can just steal on him and it will work. It, it Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Like, if you're going to have an argument about what he's doing or something you don't like, again, no one is above criticism, but you better be very, very thoughtful and careful in the way that you make it to make it as accurate as you can uh, and as accurate as it needs to be. Because if it's not, he's, he's going to eat you alive. And I, I think we've seen that. Like, Ariel has been has been doing this for a very long time at the top of the game for, I mean, 13 consecutive awards within the industry about who's the best journalist. I think it tells you a lot there, and that's something to keep in mind. I just think these guys vastly underestimate him, 
and think it's going to be some easy walk in the park. The other thing I would say is like, yeah, of course, if it was in the cage, fighters would beat my ass. They'd beat Ariel's ass. They'd beat anyone's ass. It was not an, another fighter of that caliber. But that's not the fight they're picking. They're picking media battles. You know, they're picking media battles against the guy with the number one media audience in the sport. It's just not smart. You know, again, no one's above criticism if that's a real fair thing you want to introduce. But just getting to like a war of words with him, especially if you're calling into question his character, like you better have good evidence for that. You better be right. And if you're just like off the cuff picking a media battle with him, he's going to light you on fire. He is for sure going to light you on fire. And I think you saw that. So we'll see what happens with what Patty says. In terms of like putting his case together after the fact, I don't know if anything will will really happen with that or not. I guess we'll have to see. I think the last thing I would add, though, to all of this is he was like, I saw him as a friend. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having a few friends in the industry, journalists or otherwise. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I think, in fact, in this industry, as small as it is, you kind of have to. And a big mistake I made personally, and Lord knows I've made a bunch of them over the years, is I didn't have enough allies in the industry. I still don't have that many, but I've got a lot more than I used to. And um, it's really important. So I understand the idea of wanting to befriend journalists, but, you know, fighters doing that, I, I be careful with that. And I'm not saying that, like, to Ariel or to anybody else. I'm saying the relationship works best when it's kept professional for both entities. When both entities are keeping it professional, they understand what's expected of them, they understand the strengths of that relationship, and they understand the limits of it as well. And I understand wanting to be a fighter's friend or wanting to be a media guy's friend, but those are not necessarily people you can be friendly with them. You can actually care about them in a capacity as well. But like being buddies with them is not, it's just not good for anybody. It's not good for the fighter ultimately long term. It's not good for the audience. It's not good for the whoever journalist it may be in that particular theoretical construct. It's just not it's just not a great idea. So like I understand there's a certain kind of like aw shucks that was trying to be his friend. And I understand that. And I don't think there's necessarily anything sinister about that. It's not my point. But that's not the way the relationship is supposed to work. So if Ariel understood that to be like, oh, a media opportunity, I can understand that as well. Um I he can't see it any other way because he's trying to keep a professional lens on about what he's doing. And so not getting a drink or whatever that Patty was insinuating is the right call. It's the right call to not do that kind of thing. And I said this, I'll end with this one. Um, I said this yesterday as well, and I'll, I'll remind folks. I hear a lot of, listen, I'm a critic of the MMA media. And I think one reason why fighters don't understand the difference and I'm speaking broadly about the industry, not about any one particular actor. But I think one of the reasons why fighters get confused about the limits of journalism or what it's supposed to look like is twofold. One, um, the, I think in, at large, the MMA media has not done a great job of differentiating themselves from people who are just media but not journalists. They, like the fighters actually have a hard time recognizing that difference. Now, in part, that's because of the industry pressures on them to act a certain way or getting their credentials yanked or whatever. It kind of makes everyone look homogenous to an extent. But nevertheless, there is a difference. And I think the better fighters, uh, in terms of their media savviness, would, would learn to navigate those differences and what they look like and why they look the way that they do. But in general, I think MMA media, if they're like confused, and again, speaking broadly, if they're confused about why some people don't understand the differences between journalism and not journalism, it's because a lot of it looks the same. And if it looks the same, 
that I think we all, me too, all of us, have some reflecting to do about why that's the case. However, in defending the MMA media, again, speaking broadly, one thing I will say is this, and I'll end here. Right? I have, and this is true for anyone who's done this a long term, what is the nature of my job? The nature of my job is to present to you the MMA world and all the events that happen in it, typically around the fights themselves, but everything. And I've been doing this for, you know, a long time, 15 years plus, going on 20. And so I have devoted my adult life to understanding as best I can the fight game. Now, when fighters say, if you've never done it, you'll never truly understand, they're right. They're right. I won't. And anyone else who has never done it on that level won't. There is going to be always a gap between the information that I can ascertain without doing that versus with it. And it could be a pretty big one in certain cases. But my entire adult life, by the way, 10 years in, a, in, in MMA gyms, uh, speaking to hundreds, if not thousands of fighters, hundreds, if not thousands of coaches, I've attended more events. I've got a bag with all my credentials in them, and I've talked to referees, I've talked to judges, I've talked to promoters, I've talked to sponsors. I've, I've, I've seen promotions come and go. My entire adult life has been trying to understand fights, fighters, and the fight game. Now, that doesn't entitle me to say whatever I'm going to say is biblical and factual in every case, but that has been how I have literally oriented my adult life, understanding that. You cannot tell me that the rest of the fight game has done even one-tenth that amount of effort in understanding how media works, and in particular how MMA media works. The favor has not been returned. Doesn't have to be, right? That's not their job. The job of a promoter is not to understand the, in, the intricacies of MMA media. The job of a fighter certainly is not. But if you want us to take criticisms of MMA media seriously, you could start by actually understanding how it works and why it works the way that it does, right? And you just don't see a lot of evidence of that hardly anywhere. It's why it's like most of us in MMA media roll our eyes at a lot of the criticisms. It's not that there are not criticisms to make. It's that the ones that usually get made are hopelessly wrong and usually kind of ignorant. Like there's not even remotely in the ballpark of like good discussion. This is not even worth taking very seriously. And that's, that's, that, this, this situation is a personal one between those two guys that got made public and it's a whole thing. But again, speaking broadly, you know, we do nothing but devote our lives to the study of their occupation and they don't, and they don't have to, but they don't return that favor. And then they want their critiques of the media to be taken as seriously. It's like you have a right to say those things and on occasion, they're going to be right about clickbait or other things. They're going to be right about some of those things for sure, right? That, that is a true thing. But the level of understanding about media practices and what journalism is supposed to look like, very little of that on their side comes from actually trying to learn how the business works, more just what they inherit as assumed wisdom about it. And to me, it's like, if you want me to take the criticism seriously, start making some good ones. <laughs> Start making some informed ones. Start making ones that have come from actually studying the business uh, and understanding it in the depth that it needs to be to have an informed critique. Everyone is allowed to criticize. Again, none of us, none of us, none of us are above reproach, and we have to accept that we'll never understand the fight game in the way that the fighters do. Fair enough. I accept that limitation. But if you want me or anyone else to accept the criticisms of MMA media, yo, start by learning how it works. And I just don't see a lot of evidence of that. I see a lot of just naked antipathy or 
what I see is like the laziest thing you'll see is that when a fighter, not, not, not Patty in this case, but like I've seen in the past fighters, you know, get in trouble about something or whatever, and then just lazily blame the media for it. You know, it's like, dude, that's the lowest common denominator thing you can do that just tells me you don't have any place to go to get out of this criticism. So you're just going to blame it on the media. It's like you can always do it. But that doesn't mean I have to take it seriously. And that doesn't mean anyone else has to take it seriously either. So um, as a general rule, I think folks should reflect on the fact that the study of another one's occupation here in this industry is largely a one-way street. All right. That is it for us here today. Um, I want to thank Dan Canobio for joining us. I want to thank, as I mentioned again, all of you out there. I want to thank uh, BC, who's not here, who had bagged under his eyes the size of hammocks that people sleep in. Um, and I want to thank, obviously, the uh, Malka staff, the Showtime staff, the CBS Sports staff, and everyone else involved um, who not only made today's show possible, but made the glory of the award possible as well. We are just... We are really happy right now. We are very, very happy with how things are going. And uh, I do, I'm telling you right now, we got some stuff we're working on, like like big stuff. We have some announcements coming. 2023 is going to be a fucking year to remember, folks. Believe that. Believe that. I'm telling you right now. I'm not talking about theoretical stuff. I'm talking about stuff we already got ready to announce that we're going to start announcing soon. It's going to be a huge, huge year for the sport of MMA, for boxing, for MK, and everyone else who wants to be along for the ride. And all of you have been. It has been a joy for you to be here with us, and we're going to keep this thing fucking moving. Thumbs up on the video. Please hit subscribe. Showtime is the label that pays. You go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. Morningcombat.store, get your Christmas shopping in. What are you waiting for? Global shipping. Now is the time to do it. Morningcombat at gmail.com. When BC returns next week, We'll get to fan subs and dead wrongs and all that good stuff. That's the place to send them and as well to reach to the producers. We don't see it, but they will. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mil gracias. I mean it in every way I can say it. We love you guys. We love this show. We love this opportunity. And we are far from fucking done. Enjoy the fights tonight. Enjoy the fights tomorrow. BC will be back on Monday. We'll talk to you then. And until then, may all of your gains. Be loyal.